The Incomparable is sponsored by Fairway Solitaire. The Incomparable. Number 126. February 2013. Welcome back to the Incomparable Podcast. This is Jason Snell, your host, and I am convening this edition of the Incomparable to be a comic book club. So we're going to talk about a uh, comic book club. Uh, we're not going to talk about ourselves. We're going to talk about a comic. And uh, what I'd like to do is is see if we can pick something that's available in a trade paperback. So if you're not somebody who haunts your local comic shop every week, that's okay. You can run out and get uh, get the trade paperback and read it. And it's just like a book club, except it's got pictures. You see, that's the <laughs> difference. And that makes a comic book club. And our selection for this edition of Comic Book Club is something called Lock and Key. Uh, and joining me to talk about Lock and Key, which is a, a series, uh, but it's not an open-ended series. It's a closed-ended series. And we're going to talk primarily about the first volume, and then we'll progress from there a little bit, fire off the spoiler horn when necessary. Uh, my usual compatriots on the Comic Book Club are here. Lisa Schmeiser, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you. And Jason Brightman is here with a shiny new microphone to be on the podcast. Uh, hi, Jason. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's great to have you. And joining us, a special uh, new addition to the comic book club, it's Moises Chuyan. Hi, Moises. Hello, Jason. It's lovely to take a break from hosting two comics podcasts to be on another comics uh, podcast. You're like the Wolverine of comics podcasts. You're a member of every team. Anyway, Lock and Key... Um, is by Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez. And uh, Joe Hill, if you're not aware, I keep saying this, and and I, he probably would roll his eyes at this, is he's Stephen King's kid. If you haven't heard of Stephen King, what's wrong with you? But I think he's a really good writer. I'll say that out out front. Uh, but I have to say, I think I think it's sort of relevant that he's Stephen King's kid, only because his his writing is familiar. It reminds me of Stephen King in some ways, in, and uh, and this is definitely a, a horror edged comic in some ways. Um, and also, it's set in in New England, but proving that he is independent of his father. It is largely set in the uh, the town of Lovecraft, Massachusetts, not a Maine. A few hundred miles to the south of Castle Rock, Maine, huh? <laughs> That's right. It's not Maine. So he's very different from his father. Well, I, yeah, I I've, um, was thinking about the similarities between Stephen King's work and Joe Hill's. And I was also thinking it takes a heck of a lot of nerve to be a, a child of Stephen King's and to go into basically the same line of work and mine the same genres too, especially when one of your parents is, is the 20th century's answer to, to Charles Dickens. You know, until you mentioned that, I had no idea Joe Hill was Stephen King's kid. You didn't know? Oh, no, I, I didn't good. know, which just shows you how much Stephen King I've read. Get off this podcast. Get out. <laughs> Lisa has banished you. <laughs> it, it's a it's a good perspective because now that you mention that it, it makes sense and I, I can recognize some certain things in there. There's a vibe there, right? There's, I mean, there's yeah. a there's a tone. So I read I read actually um, one we're we're gonna talk about maybe a little bit later, but I read volume four of of Lock and Key first, which is completely oh. wrong, oh. mostly because it was nominated for a Hugo Award and 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 as a Hugo voter, I got uh, the packet with all the nominees, including. Lock and Key, and I just thought it was one of those. I didn't realize it was so self-contained that it really was a story to be read from beginning to end. But I had no idea who Joe Hill was when I read it, and I was impressed enough at that point to say, "Wow, that was really good." I don't understand half of what I read.
read and I need to go back to the beginning and start with uh, volume one, Welcome to Lovecraft, available at your local local comics store from uh, IDW Publishing. And I've got my copy right in my hot little hands here, a paper copy of it. I don't know where to begin. This is the first volume is really interesting because um, over over future volumes are set in this town, but volume one is is about setting a mood and introducing us to these characters. And, and I was trying to explain in two sentences what this story is to my wife, and the best I could I could kind of come up with is it's about these kids who are in California and their father is murdered, and they have to move back to. Um, to this town in New England, not Maine, <laughs> and the murderer comes to get them because that's basically the story of the of Welcome to Lovecraft. I mean, it, the, the, oh, and there's there are magic keys, by the way. Well, I I thought that one of the the most chilling aspects of Welcome to Lovecraft in a book that is just stock full of them is the realization that this uh, brutal murder isn't even really the point of the story. It's just an event meant to set the whole story in motion and that it only gets more horrific by the end when you realize that there is some malign force that's moving all of these people into place like so many little chess pieces. Um, that's That said, the murder itself is plenty horrific. And um, if I close my eyes, I can still see the comic book panel where um, the daughter, Kinsey, is holding Bo- is holding her hand over Bodhi's mouth and and cowering so that the axe murderer can't find them. Just just the way that that panel is shot and composed, and, yeah. and inked is 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 haunting. It's it's an incredible art and it's horrifying to look at at the same time. It's so effective, and it, you're right. In one way, it's not really representative of where the series is going, mm-hmm. and, but it's so evocative from the get-go because it's it's the thing that it sets the whole story in motion, yeah. but it, it's not, you know, this this isn't a, a, a meditation on the impact of that act of violence on mm-hmm. these children. I mean, it is sort of that, but it's really about putting these kids on a trajectory. It, it almost reminded me of like a, like a Narnia kind of mm-hmm. dark, dark Narnia kind of thing where yeah. there's magic and the kids to get to that, to get to this house where um where this magical you know magical keys where where they're located uh there's this terrible tragedy like um it's the blitz in the case of narnia and here it's a it's a murder right yeah. well one of my favorite books as a kid was uh james and the giant peach which it, it all begins with james's parents being horribly grotesquely killed in a, a animal attack escaped what is it like a rhinoceros or something escapes from the makes zoo? for a lovely disney movie right right well yeah <laughs> I mean, but it starts out really dark, right? Well, and, and then it kind of, and then he goes to his awful land, so it gets darker. But it mm-hmm. reminded me of that a little bit too, where there's this horrible moment that kicks off the, a series of of unfortunate events, right? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, by the way, the panel I'm talking about is on page 45 for anybody who's playing along at home and has the trade paperback. Um, and you see it repeated again on page 61 in a lot more detail, much much more gruesomely. Um, so it's it's definitely this is one of the things about the series is they do a great job of repeating visual motifs over and over again oh, yeah. um without beating you over the head with it which I really appreciate. Yeah, well I think the the storytelling particularly the the first chapter um or the first issue if you were doing it in the floppy way uh the way it opens up with just the the welcome mat and the door and then the the two murderers at the door um with their you you see their weapons sort of hidden, yeah. Um, and this is just on the the second page of the thing, and oh, so already you know, 
no good is going to happen, but it starts setting this tone of of hidden motives, hidden mm. objects. The bodies in the back of the truck really got me too. Yeah. Where there's a right. faraway reverse shot where you see that you know, that although they're being you know sort of like posing as as reasonable people, there are dead yeah. bodies in the in the back of the pickup truck. She says, "I like your pickup. It's from my uncle. He doesn't mind." And, and yeah, it's readily apparent why. Oh. Man. And it's just the well. It it one of the themes that seems to be embroidered over the series is that that you don't know will kill you, and um, they lay that out in the first nine pages of the book. Excuse me, actually the first three pages of the book. So uh, Joe Hill does not mess around. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no. I was thinking about this, and um, like I said, I, I think Stephen King is basically the 20th century answer to Charles Dickens in that he's written a lot of fiction and actually created a lot of fictional tropes that have become part of pop culture. Um, people always joke about proms and pig's blood um, the same way. And the shining has certainly entered people's, uh, you know, lexicons, even if some of that can be attributed to Stanley Kubrick. And I thought about how challenging it has to be if you are a writer and you're trying to, to pull together this whole narrative universe and you're like, all right, the stuff that I'm sorting through in my head, my imagination, how much of that is coming from me and how much of that is stuff that my dad was gassing on about the dinner table 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, how was your day? Oh, it wasn't bad. I, I wrote a scene about a bunch of people living under a dome today. You know, <laughs> you know how, how, do you, how do you find your own original voice in that? And um, I would love to know how Joe Hill has done it because um, – there's a lot of Kingian influences. For example, I think a lot of the naming, um, a lot of the names that he comes up with as characters have a very Stephen King feel to them because King has a gift for, for giving his characters very uh, vivid and illustrative names and that, that, that's continued here. But at the same time... Um, well, you don't, you don't feel like he's doing... He's not doing an impression of his father. If I didn't no. know that he was Stephen King's kid, I would say, this is somebody who's influenced by Stephen King, right? Clearly. Yeah, but he's not as sentimental. Like there's always been a really broad streak of sentiment running through King's work, almost mawkishness in places. And this book is a, I wouldn't say nasty because that, like, I, I tend to think of Neil Gaiman as being kind of a, a having a, a broad streak of nastiness through his comic book writing. But Hill seems to be a lot more clear eyed and a lot less sentimental about people's emotions and motives and the damage that they do to other people. And um, I find it refreshing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, that kind of brut, uh, brutal uh, honesty about the characters and motivations without mm -hmm. the need to go back to the, that, uh, uh, kingish um, sentimentality for sentimentality's sake was one of the things that I found most arresting about it on on my first read through of of the first of the first volume of it. Welcome to Lovecraft, and it's one that I reread even though I had the other four sitting right there and I was ready to plow right through them. I had to I had to come come to grips with the fact that it was going to be just this uncompromising, and that's that's what really hooked me in immediately mm. and and made it so compelling for me i mean where they're dealing with issues of the you know the mother's uh, substance abuse and post-traumatic stress disorder that that has resulted from this uh thing and the way that the kids are coping in different ways how the daughter's uh trying to figure out not just who she is as a human being but as an adolescent girl wanting to you know start relationships with uh, with uh, with with girls as well as with guys romantically and trying to navigate that mm -hmm. on top of being the epicenter of all of this really terrible stuff and then the little kid trying to be a little kid and then the eldest brother trying to find his place in the whole thing and there isn't this there isn't this um periodic kumbaya moment where everybody is no. you know just holding hands and and sharing warm glasses of milk and graham crackers it just doesn't happen 
No, because you meet Zach at the end and you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> oh, no. So, so that, I mean, that I think you're right. There's so much here that because you, there is this whole layer of it would plot alone, right? The kid's parent, your kid's father is killed. Uh, they they basically flee to the other side of the country to the to the town where he grew up. The mother is a wreck. That would be that would be enough. But the fact is that the killer escapes, is basically killing his way across the country to get to them. Meanwhile, they're trying to adapt to their new town. So you've got all of the interpersonal dynamics of being a kid in a new town, trying mm-hmm. to trying to. Uh, plus, it's where their father grew up, so there are some landmines about the families there, too. And then, oh yes, the killer, who is being supervised by a supernatural force, is going to come to the house mm-hmm. and and finish the job. Um, and also, there's a voice in the bottom of the well saying, bring me things, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's, right introduced at the end of the first chapter, is that door that you walk through and you die. Well, th- it, that's a great uh, moment, isn't it? Where that—that's our introduction to the magic keys. Is that there's there's a gateway that sets your astral self free, but by all accounts, what happens is basically your body collapses in a heap, and it's like you died, except that you're a ghost and you get to go around and see what's going on. But it freaks out the people who find your dead body, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, that w- yeah, yeah. I mean, which is really cool, and that's that's that. There, there's our fantasy element. I mean. Uh, and there, that's definitely here, but it's interesting that it's playing with all of these other things. Like the kids, the kids' story of fleeing after a traumatic event and trying to adapt to a town. That would be a story. That would be a good story on its own. About effectively going from having two parents to no parents, since their mom, for all intents and purposes, is checked out. Yeah, because she's a drunk, and basically, yeah, she. Well, I would argue she's be- she's she's turned to the bottle for for understandable reasons, but the net result is that she can't yes, be there for her she's, kids. She's she's not able to process. Yeah. No, she's not able to parent right now. And so these these poor kids have gone from from two parents to no parents. They've been thrust 3,000 miles across country. And uh, like you said, that alone would actually make a really good comic. comic. But then you throw in an escaped spree killer and and some supernatural elements and the, the backstory of living in dad's old house. And the hints of the mysteries. Um, for example, it's uh, it's it's obvious in telling that uh, they they do the Tempest as a senior play, and and there are clues to future books in that right. shot of, of of the Tempest, and you're like, uh oh, you know, anytime this gets brought up, the dad. There's a, there's a shot of the dad in the senior play, and it's the mm-hmm. Tempest. And I wanted to talk about the dad a little bit because what one of the things that fascinates me about the series is that the dad is a pivotal figure, and mm-hmm. he's dead very very quickly. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Quite rapidly, he he is dead, and yet his shadow hangs over everything because they end up in the town. We see him as a kid in the in the high school play of the Tempest, and and over the course of time, you know what the history of this house and the history of this town are matters a huge amount to the story. Um, but it, it it is kind of a fascinating uh, narrative trick that you know we we know he's going to be important at the very beginning, and then he's immediately killed, and that doesn't make him any less important. It makes him kind of vitally important. It makes it more of a mystery to unravel. Yeah. So toward the end of of this volume, there it, there's some great dialogue that I have come to appreciate more and more as I've read more volumes of the series. But it goes for this whole how the whole first uh, book is uh, designed, how it, how it's uh, plotted which is one one of the uh, a sinister character shall we say 
says, you can't understand because you're reading the last chapter of something without having read the first chapters. You're, mm-hmm. a little, you're a little guy, Bodhi. Kids always think they're coming into a story at the beginning when usually they're coming in at the end. And definitely, you know, there are two ways to read this story. We, we, we're reading it. It is the beginning of Lock and Key. This is, this is going to be a six-part series that tells a whole big story and so for us it's the beginning but it's very clear as you're reading it that there's this whole undercurrent the story of the kids coming to the town is just beginning but they are inheriting all of this baggage that comes with their their family's history and this house and the where the magic keys came from and all of this stuff and and that really adds a wonderful i think layer of foreboding of uh, you know, oh God, what are they getting themselves into? They're fleeing this horrible event into the arms of more horribleness. So there, I I love that line too. And there's, I've only read the first volume. And so there's there's clear kind of foreshadowing that the father was involved in, in some of this stuff before or when he was a kid. And right. so are we starting to deal with it's a sins of the father sort of story as it plays out. Yeah, which is, is is tough because, you know, the father is is killed at the beginning, and so you feel really, really bad. And then as, as the time goes on, you're like, well, what was he involved with? This is not spoiling anything to say that that shot of everybody, in the, the photograph of everyone in The Tempest, um, you learn over the next few volumes why it's so important <laughs> it's that that's really in there important. and what happens to everybody in it. Um, so it, it talks about how the fact that no one generation is insulated from another. I'm getting chills just talking about this stuff. <laughs> I'm uh, literal chills. Well, it is refreshing in a in an industry with uh, comics, especially where uh, how shall I put this uh, delicately? Uh, writers tend to make stuff up. You get the sense sometimes that they have no idea what they're doing and they're making it up as they go along. And with Lock and Key, the more I've read it, the more I know that they, this is a story that was planned out to the detail and it's really refreshing to get that sense that you're in you know you're in the hands of somebody who is really in complete control of where the story is going because there have been lots even though it's not it's not over yet and who knows what the what the ending will be um exactly but having read a lot of a lot of this story now five sixths of this story um i don't feel at any point that i've gotten uh the sense that there's been a, a trick played on me that uh, in order to figure out how the story goes, the story is, uh, uh, the, you know, the story is solid and, and reading back to the first volume uh, only reinforces it after I've read more of it, which I, I really mm-hmm. love because that doesn't, you know, you might see that in a six or 12 issue miniseries, but this is something that's going to last. What is it going to be? 37 issues. And it's going to be, I think, solid all the way through. Yeah happen very often no it's 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 an incredibly well thought out series um and i think one of the things i like about it is that the uh art style that uh, gabriel rodriguez has um there's something almost playful about the way he uh, he does a good job with menace <laughs> and all that too but but the lines remind me a lot of the the kind of playful almost anime aesthetic that um began to hit comics in the late 90s, early aughts, the last time comic book stores decided that girls were worth paying attention to. And then you had all these books that were drawn with, you know, girls with bouncy ponytails and people with big eyes and, and bright, shiny smiles. And there's there's kind of an element of that in here too, which um, I think actually... Yeah, and, and it underscores the horror so nicely because it points out that, you know, all these surface appearances are, are, are showing you that things are, are, are cute and middle class and clean and, and, and shiny. And, and actually, they're not. Everything is just kind of rotting from the inside out or being dragged down into, in, into 
pits of unnameable evil by by forces people don't quite understand. But hey, their hair looks great while it's happening. <laughs> I, I have to give a lot of credit to Gabriel Rodriguez for um for uh, being so consistent with the with the characters. Now, some part of mm-hmm. this is over over all of these uh, issues. It is just him doing the art, which is great because um, yeah. a lot of series you lose track of who is who because they don't look the same anymore and not only not only is it consistent but he's drawn uh these characters they they are instantly recognizable i don't know i even know how to describe it other than to say that everybody looks like they look they don't look like who which one is that you know which guy is that which girl is that? Yeah, you know, you 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 know from the shape of their face, from the the the, the big, you know, who's got the big chin. It's not even like what they're wearing from their eyes, or who bites their lip all the time, exactly, or or, or who hunches in a specific way, and who who sits easy and open. Um, and and he actually does a really great job. Um, in just a few lines, conveying a lot. This is a guy who the artist. He's obviously studied body language a lot because just the way people lean into each other. Um, or, or lean into or out of a frame is um, incredibly telling. The body language that he uses for Ellie through the course of the series is um, heartbreaking in a way. I, I feel terrible for that character. Um, and Ellie, Ellie is a, a character who went through school with the kid's father and who's now, uh, I guess, the track coach at the school. Right. Yeah. Um, and we we get such a limited peek into her in the first volume in the first few volumes actually um and we don't know where this um without spoiling anything this this uh on rails kind of complacency where it's you know you you wonder what could be compelling this behavior what what could be behind all of this fear that's driven her into uh, almost stepfordism yeah. Um, there's an answer. There's an answer, and it's horrifying. <laughs> there's um, an answer that is absolutely horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Th- that, that describes so much of the series. <laughs> One of the great things about Ellie, though, is she's the mother of Rufus, who I think is my favorite character. Um, Jason, Jason B. I should say. When you get to Volume Two and beyond, um, you'll know who I'm talking about. But it's one of those characters where you have to go back and and just kind of genuflect at the altar to Joe Hill for how carefully he's planned out the character and. Uh, his specific uh, personality traits and everything he says, because it, it's encoded in like two or three layers of meaning. So Jason, you've, we've got, it's great that we've got you here. Who's only read volume one. And, and, and at some point we'll, we'll let you, we'll put you in the chamber of silence and, and maybe discuss what happens after. But I'm interested in your take having, you know, if you've got more to say about, about what you think and where you think this is going, having only read mm-hmm. volume one, because it's hard <laughs> for me to think about this story, especially since I started with volume four, uh, <laughs> about what, what my take on it would have been, because it does, it does progress and change and shift gears over, over the course of, of telling this story. So, you know, what's your take being a, a babe in the woods who's only read volume <laughs> one? Well, uh, I'm, I'm super excited listening to, uh, you guys, you know, talk about where it's going and the fact that it, it, it is satisfying because like we've talked about on previous podcasts, there's a lot of stories that you feel halfway through the writer sort of lost their way. Yeah. Um, and it's net, not a satisfying ending. So I'm more anxious to read the rest of them now. Uh, so I found the, the first chapter a little difficult um, on the artwork side at getting in. Cause the, the first, you know, several scenes are um it cuts between the present and the past 
the farmhouse and um, the city, uh, and you're just meeting the characters. And so uh, I had to very kind of closely read it and once or twice go back to be like, oh, is this character that one? Which I found it a little bit difficult to get into the story. That that quickly went away by the end of the first issue. Right. I was thinking about that when you guys were talking about the artwork, um, because I, I completely agree as it went on, uh, the the artwork and the simplicity of it in the sort of very... Um, somewhat manga inspired style uh, was a nice contrast to the absolute horror of what was going on and made the horror stuff seem more horrific yes because of its its cuteness um i sent i got a lot out of the first issue a lot of kind of foreboding you know bad things happened in the first issue and then they went away and they they got to Massachusetts and you're like oh okay now now it's going to be a story about them getting their lives back together but then <laughs> right and then the 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 you know evil sort of follows them uh and you and you see that the spirit in the the well is the same one that's been manipulating the the guy who killed their father uh and he's coming to get them and so there was you see that the impending doom of that coming as well as uh the hints um, particularly in that uh, phrase that you mentioned, Jason, of uh, kids always think they're coming in at the beginning of a story. Uh, there's just so much foreboding that I think that's why I hadn't picked up the second issue yet in the sense that like, you you feel like there's a car wreck coming <laughs> and, and it's hard to kind of want to pick up the next book to, to see the wreck. Yeah, you know... Yes, I I I I see what you're saying. That it definitely there's a sense that that this is going to be things are going to get worse, right? Otherwise, there wouldn't be a story. There's got to be more here. What surprised me, without giving too much away, is uh, throughout the series the ability for for each uh, not just even each volume, but each issue to shift gears and tell stories almost um, I'd say almost Twilight Zone like. Where while advancing his uh, general plot or painting in some of the background to to explain what's going to be happening later on, um, he can take these detours. Uh, Joe Hill does where where there's an issue that is uh, a little bit off format, or even if it's advancing the story, it's 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 weirdly self-contained. It's like this is the issue where now again, not to give too much away, this is the issue where they find the key that lets them become animals, right? And that's mm-hmm. like an issue. And it's great. And it does advance the story, but it's great on its own. And, and there's a, there's the the issue that adva- the story is advancing, but there's the issue with the um the uh the the teacher, the the um the the black teacher who smokes the pipe and it's like you're flashing but when he's when he's young and but he knew the kids and uh and so he he knows the bad the identity of the bad person mm-hmm. <laughs> right and 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 there that is advancing the plot but it's also got this beautiful internal story almost it reminded me of watchmen where um while advancing the story there's there's some really artful self-contained in an issue like i feel like uh, by the end it references what happens at the very beginning and it's beautiful and it's sad and it's and, and and there's a lot of that. There's an issue with like big monsters fighting each other. That's just like that's the issue. So it, that's that's the thing that surprised me about it. Is the overarching story is rough, and you know it is like evil trying to defeat the forces of good, basically. But inside it, he doesn't. 
you know, it's not a relentless drive to that, I guess is what I'm saying. There are some really interesting things that are not quite uh, diversions from the story because they all, I think, matter. But you don't feel like you're just on this train track where it's just going to be every single issue is just boom, 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 hitting you with the latest painful plot development, which I thought I, I really enjoyed that, that, that in volume two and volume three, I didn't feel like I was just getting hammered with the latest terrible thing that the, you know, that the forces of evil were, were trying to achieve. I, I did like the, the last panel of the, the first story arc where you see all of the keys and yeah. you sort of start looking at them guessing, Oh, I wonder what that key does. I wonder what that key does. <laughs> oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And some of them are a little more self-evident than others, but you still, uh, oh boy, there's a lot of keys going all the way down. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the progression of how they introduce us to these keys and what they do is really interesting, too, where Jason was saying that there are some keys that we get an entire issue dedicated to what they do. Some of them that we see, and then they don't actually find the key for some time. Others that are talked about and then suddenly discovered. And then um, there's a run, I can't remember which volume it's in, where... We uh, one of my favorite bits of it, I'll find it at some point uh, during the discussion um, where they go through the month of February and they discover a bunch of different keys and we don't get a whole lot of information other than, look, here are the kids uh, covered in, uh, you know, monsters uh, fighting them. uh, And one of them's got wings now. Um, And you get you get these little vignettes with little other explanation just because you, he, he's he got the economy of story down to where he doesn't have to give you the same kind of, look, they've discovered a new key, like, um, to liken it to anime. Uh, you know, oh, here's another Dragon Ball. Let's spend eight hours on this. Um, you know, because you, you just, you don't, you don't have to do that every time. But there are some of them that it really, it really does matter uh, to know not just what they do, but why they were created. S. Williams in the chat room says that's in book uh, in volume four. I love you, S. Williams, and and uh, that and that goes to what I was saying earlier too. Thanks because I had forgotten that that uh, that issue. But that's another thing. It's it's you know it's not it's off format. Got to note that the end of volume three is deeply, awfully disturbing. Um, well, there's <laughs> there's a lot of disturbing to go to go along, but but then then they mix it up, right? You know, it's it's I I really like it. I mean, I I I have to say, just uh, I've been very impressed with all of it. And yet, I read volume five uh, today, and you know, afterward, I felt kind of antsy and kind of disturbed. Like I need to, I need to to calm down. Except you know, and and not think of it for a while. Except I'm going to do a podcast about it later. So right, but but there it is affecting, and I, I think in a good I think in a good way. I think it's powerful, but it's it's you know it can be tough stuff. It's it's kind of unflinching. This is not. I have no great confidence that everybody is gonna everything's gonna end up okay at the end. Right? <laughs> None. None no, confidence. No. See, it's it's that impending doom thing. Yeah. If he follows in his dad's footsteps, there's always going to be a sacrifice because that's that's been a theme in 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 um, Stephen King's work is is that sacrifice is always required to lay down evil, and right. even then it's usually temporary. And I would not be surprised if Joe Hill, if if that uh, resonates with him, since from the three volumes I've read so far, one of the things that seems to come up is if you're glorying in an unearned privilege, is a horrible price to be paid for it later. And it seems to me that. Um, the balance is probably going to come due by the end of the book. Yeah, 
Yeah. There will be an ending that I'm sure is really satisfying on a storytelling level, and I, I think it will probably be a little bit heartbreaking at an emotional level, but I'm not sure happy will ever be applied to it. Probably, yeah, probably not. Fairway Solitaire by Big Fish is a witty and addictive golf-themed card game on iOS. It offers players a ton of fresh content, over 70 unique courses with over 350 different solitaire puzzles and new challenges every single day. Adding to the challenge of the puzzles is a mischievous gopher known as McDivitt. His goal is to fight you every step of the way to avenge his ancestor, Bravetooth. I know what you're thinking solitaire is lame, golf is boring, and you might be right, but this game is the real thing. Fairway Solitaire was the winner of the IGN People's Choice Award for the Best Mobile Card Game in 2012. Is that a big deal? The Fairway Solitaire team is not sure themselves, but they are pretty stoked about this achievement anyway. More than 40,000 people have given it a five-star rating on iTunes. Ken Levine of Bioshock tweeted, I finished Fairway Solitaire on the iPad. There, I'm not ashamed to say it. And Penny Arcade says... This game is awesome. You can Google it if you think they're making this stuff up. Fairway Solitaire is available now in the App Store for iPhone, iPod Touch, and iPad. Join more than 1 million people who are actively playing Fairway Solitaire. For a limited time only, get a free code for the full version on the iPhone and iPod. Visit giveaway.fairwaysolitaire.com to get your free code. Giveaway.fairwaysolitaire.com There's this brief... Um, stylistic detour where they actually pay tribute to Bill Watterson in this comic of all comics. They uh, they they do a little a little bit um, in tribute to Bill Watterson in Volume Four that whereas you would not expect uh, a direct Calvin and Hobbes art style homage to go over with this subject matter, it uh, it kind of works perfectly. <laughs> Well, Calvin and Hobbes is at its heart, at its heart kind of a horror strip, so uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, it, well, it, it, it is a, it's, it is in a way when you think about it. Um, a boy is going to get mauled by that tiger at any moment. <laughs> no, it's that boy is going to be forced to take a lot of medication and yeah. go to a special yeah. school at any moment. Yeah. That's pretty much that. Yeah. He thinks um, the tiger is real. Yes. Um, no, it's 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 actually it's a great it's a great strip that emphasizes the imaginative horrors of childhood and how freaking scary growing up is. And um, since one of the themes through Lock and Key is also that growing up, even when you aren't dealing with um, homicidal maniacs and the the fiendish fing- fingers of the evil undead, that the growing up is really tough. Um, it, it's kind of in the same genre. It, it's it's kind of in the same sympathetic vein. So it makes a lot of sense to me. I can't wait to read it. What I liked about the series was what I expected before I read it to then from the first couple of pages to the end completely changed huh. uh, and continue to change. And the way you guys are talking about it now, uh, it, it seems like there's all these different levels be- beyond the foreboding doom. Yes. In addition to the foreboding in addition, doom. Yeah. But, <laughs> and the fact that they do the side trips and, and things like that, you know, the, the comic series, it's somewhat reminding me of is the Sandman, perhaps not as pretentiously, But the fact that there's, there's, you know, in the Sandman they set up this mythology, and in here in Lock and Key, it's it's sort of the keys that that provide a framework. But there's, it's more than that, and then the that's just the platform for telling these other stories. You know, I've still only read like the first twelve issues of Sandman. I know that's sacrilege. I know. No, it's not sacrilege. I'm saying is, Jason, this is a fantastic opportunity because we could totally do a reread, and I'd love to get your opinion. And there's a new Sandman story coming out in the next couple of months. 
Well, we should we should get that on the calendar because then I can be your test case. Like Jason is our test case of what if you've only read one volume of Lock and Key. I will be your new reader of Sandman. I love Neil Gaiman too. I really have liked uh, his novels, so I should probably read the thing that made him famous, right? Probably you should. Probably. You should. And and for for those who have been in Sandman withdrawal for a long while, this is actually a really great antidote to that sickness. I, I'm going to be sacrilegious, and it, it, this is where the comic um, the comics community comes after me. The torches and the pictures. <laughs> I actually like this better than Sandman. Um, but I think Jason needs to read some before, <gasps> no, before I, I explain. I, exactly. I Are people know. clutching their pearls in live chat? I know she had no taste, but um, there's a lot of reasons for that, and I'd be happy to either expound on them on Twitter or in private correspondence or something, but I think they're, um, like I said, um, I think Gaiman is a brilliant writer, and I like that he does the same thing Alan Moore does, where they blithely reappropriate and mix up um, elements from history and, and literature, and there's kind of that, hey, it's that guy moment when you realize that they're dealing with, you know, ancient mythology and it's casually incorporated into modern life but i think there's a streak of nastiness at gaiman's core that that i find kind of off-putting so um and although again i stand by my assessment that joe hill's not sentimental i think that he has a lot of compassion for the for, for the weakness of the human condition and i i just empathize with that a lot better than i do with with the gaiman uh approach you, you know i can actually see that because the the there's a lot more heart in mm-hmm. Lock and Key, um, where the Sandman is, it, it always stays at somewhat of an intellectual lair, even when it has pretty compelling characters. You know, I, what strike strikes me about it, and again, I need to read more Sandman, but having read a little bit of it, is that it struck me as being very kind of fantastical and removed and kind of this dark kind of goth kind of world of well it's very mm-hmm. foreboding and all of that and the, but lock and key you know is and this goes to again uh, joe hill is a, a really good writer but thinking of him as as also in the in the <laughs> stephen king family um stylistically not just literally um stephen king and and lock and key is like this too it's set in a in a real world that is then that, that's got this mundanity to it and then it's got this layer of kind of horror on top of it or or weirdness and 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 it doesn't feel like a magical world even though there's magic in it whereas the the Sand- sandman that i've read anyway it feels like a you know magical fairy tale uh world in it's like you're yeah. almost like you're coming from a complete completely opposite direction to get to your story from the two of them this is like mm-hmm. our world with magic in it and the sandman always seemed to be like a, a fairy tale world yeah yeah which is not not necessarily bad or good, just different. It's because the Sandman was told from that point of view. Right. The main characters are the otherworldly characters. Where right. Here, the main characters are us. Are these kids? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's these these kids having this ad- adventure. Lisa, uh, your husband is an A's fan and owns, owns an A's hat. Did you ever? <laughs> did you have issues with the fact that one of our main characters wears an A's hat all the time? I, I liked the I, I like the fact that it was set in a part of Northern California that's not you know wall to wall millionaires or, or Pixar employees or whatever too. Yeah. It's out in but, the valley is where they start. Yeah. Well um, actually I, th- I thought it was uh I thought it was up north like Sonoma. Oh I th- I think I thought it was like was it was it that or was it like up in like Chico or something like that? But anyway, yeah, it's not your it's usual like, it's, Northern California setting. It's like setting. rural Northern California. Yeah. And yeah. I just got back from spending two days up in Del Norte County. So, you know, I drove through a lot of that area too. It's nice to see a depiction of California that's not um either stereotypical Southern California or a stereotypical San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I don't know if the, the the creative team came out and actually spent some time knocking around the area or 
if it's just a lot of well-educated guesswork on yeah. their part, but I think they really nailed it. Yeah. It was <laughs> so, nice to see. Yeah. Oh, oh, Jason Brightman. I was, I, I had a thought about this series that may actually make your head explode since uh, we've gone back and forth <laughs> on preacher. But um, <laughs> what was striking me is again, since this is a really distinctive visual style for, for both the characters and the artists is I thought, you know, the last time that I associated a book this strong with the artist who was consistent all the way through was with Steve Dillon. Although, to be fair with Dylan, all of his characters look alike because they all have the same facial composition. <laughs> but there, 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 there is, you have to admit that Dylan has this really distinctive style where, you know, you flip through a book, you're like, yep, that's a Steve Dylan book. <laughs> did, um, did that consistency, did, did you find that when you were going through the, the, the first trade or, or, um, yeah, I, I did, um, well, essentially, I wouldn't compare it to Dylan's stuff, just stylistically, my brain can't go no. there um, <laughs> uh, but there was i mean the artwork was very consistent in the first issue i think it was just the pacing of the first couple of pages made it difficult for me to get in and i'm not sure that was actually unintentional because then once you did work to sort of get in and understand then you were hooked yeah i can't see any preacher in this sorry <laughs> no it was, it was it was just basically um maybe it was the square square jaw in uh the young man, but uh, no, there was just kind of, there was such a marvelous um, aesthetic consistency that, that again, the first thing that I thought of was, was they had that, that same consistency of line and preacher, but story-wise they bear no resemblance to each other whatsoever. The, um, I actually have to be on IDW's website right now on their, their lock and key page. And not only can you buy the books, uh, you can actually buy replicas of the keys. Oh, of course yes, you can. Yes, you can. Oh my God. That that uh that would frighten me actually. I don't want those keys in my house. No, because then no. somebody will come and kill me. Not not even the gender key. <laughs> no, <laughs> you'll buy them just so that you can melt them down. I, it doesn't. The price is too high. The price is too high. <laughs> the time machine. There's a time. There's a time machine key too. The price is too high. The the or evil beings will come and. Uh, oh no. Mm, no! No 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 no. Plus, no. some of those keys are super creepy looking. Yes. Yeah, they have the a replica of the head key. Well, that's oh God, that's that because the creepiest it's creepiest key. Oh lord. That's because it's made of demon metal, but you haven't read that part yet. Anyway, no. <laughs> there there suffice it to see you you learn where the metal comes from that makes the keys. That's how crazy Ooh. this this uh this story is. Because unicorns have to poop somewhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm being misleading. So I, I'd like to ask before we go to ask everybody um, the, that musical question, what are you reading? Which I'm not going to sing. It's not that musical. Uh, because I always <laughs> like to hear what everybody uh, what everybody's reading and if there's something that I should uh, I should be looking for in the, at, the, at the comic shop or as I call it, the comics app in my iPad. Uh, Lisa, what are you reading? I just finished up um, Brian Wood's uh, run on Northlanders. Um, I don't know if I have talked about this series no. before or not. Um, I should also point out that I'm, I'm a, a big fan of Brian Wood's work in general. Um, but Northlanders is, um, it's a comic book series that Vertigo pushed out, of course. And basically it's about Vikings and, um, it's not contiguous. There's a number of distinct series arcs. Um, for example, the first, uh, collection focuses around a guy named Sven, Sven the Returned, who comes back to take, um, who, who wages a war against somebody who kicked him out of a Viking settlement a long time ago. Um, they cover mission. They, they cover early uh, Christian uh, monks with the cross and the hammer. Um, there's uh, the volume I just finished, which is the Icelandic trilogy wrapped up the whole series. And it's about um, 
five different generations of Icelandic settlers from the first Norwegians who came over um, escaping a political, a bad political situation um, uh, around one th- around uh, AD 1000, possibly a little bit before. And it goes down the success of five generations and how they basically uh, come to rule the island through, t- through, through terror and ignorance. Um, and, the writing is, it, it, again, not a sentimental series. The writing is often very pitiless, but it um, one of the themes he returns to over and over again is how civilization, the, 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 the trappings of civilization that we all take for granted were kindled in stops and starts um, during a period of time when, when life was very harsh and the weather was terrible and, and the culture was, was very much an honor, honor-driven one and the things people will do to survive and thrive and... Um, the balance between the atavistic impulses that will keep you alive versus um, the more abstract human intellect, intellectual impulses or sentiments that uh, have come to define humanity as both a concept and a, and a civilization. And um, again, I want to repeat Vikings. So no, Vikings, right? Mm-hmm. No, no one kind of like through line with, with it's sort of uh, uh, sort of thematically linked. They're all about Vikings, but sort of different stories being told about the Vikings. Yeah, yeah. There's one that's set in the Faroe Islands. There's another one that's set. There's some that are set in Iceland. There are some that are set in um, during the the, peri- the periodic sackings of the British Isles, things like that. Um, wow. There's one uh, set called the Plague Widow, which is set in Russia um, and deals with what happens um, to a woman who who is widowed again during a plague and what she has to do to survive and fend off the attentions of the vigilantes who have taken over the village in the wake of every figure of authority dying during a plague. Wow. They do return to Sven in, in one volume, Sven the Immortal, where he has to fend off a challenge to an island that he ends up settling. But there's no one main character. I mean, if anything, the character is kind of the, 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 the Viking ethos. <laughs> and um, it, it the earliest story, I think, is set in about 780 AD, and then it, it usually runs to about 1100. So it's it's a really bloody, really brutal period of history. Um, and it's also a fascinating one because um, you're talking about a culture that had rammed up repeatedly against the Roman empire. And um, this is, you know, the Roman empire at this point was also beginning to crumble. And so this is about what happens to people who are kind of whipsawed between all of these, these different um, forces scrabbling to, to, to grab, to grab resources in a really dark and chaotic time. Right, so that's 50, 50 issues collected as mm-hmm. seven yeah. trade paperbacks. I have um, Northlanders. I have, yeah, I have like two, I have like two of them on hand. And I think I have another five buried in my. I have the other five buried in my collection somewhere. <laughs> and um, I really like Brian Wood's work in general because um, he also wrote. Um, I think he did. He did. Uh, let's DMZ. See, he, he, yeah. Well, actually, you know which one I really like is local. Um, mm, yeah which was um, done with Ryan Kelly. And uh, actually, Jason, I think you would really like, uh, Jason Stone, you would really like Local because it follows oh. the adventures of one woman through about a decade of her life from um, college through uh, to about age 30 as she bounces around the country and what happens to her and, and what happens around her. And, um, oh. the theme of, and the theme of that series is, is um, I mean, the, the overall moral is there's no such thing as a geographic cure because wherever you go, there you are. But uh, another, but another one of the themes is that place can shape you more subtly than you can imagine, and you often don't realize that until you've actually left the place. Um, but yeah, Brian Wood also does DMZ, which I was reading for a while. Um, I don't remember why I stopped. I should probably pick that up again. Um, but he's uh, he, he's a he's got a for lack of a better word, he's got a really nice, fresh, modern sensibility, and. Um, 
he he doesn't necessarily bring that to bear on the Vikings, but he does do a great job of casting their societal norms into a perspective that modern eyes can actually modern eyes and 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 and, and mentalities can understand and 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 grok. And I think that's a real gift for any storytelling to be able to take a historic to be able to take any historic period and put it into context for somebody who's coming at it from from their own you know many many centuries removed perspective. So yeah, I would and 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 again, best of all, the series is totally done. So there's no need to worry about having to sort through 20 years of continuity or backstory. <laughs> I like and, that. Yeah. And um, it's, and I also happen to think the Vikings are pretty underrepresented in, in popular literature anyway. So here you go. <laughs> Vikings, well, there was that big boom in Viking comics and that, no, that never happened. No, no. Well, something, uh, <laughs> something I should throw in that just got announced is Brian Wood is, uh, is taking on the adjectiveless X-Men title and uh and it's gonna start an, it's an all, all girl team, team all oh, female yeah. team i am so excited about that yeah <laughs> x-men misleading title come on oh I'm it was kidding. to be fair the I'm x-men kidding. came of came of age in the 60s where you know men was assumed to stand for humanity in general <laughs> charles xavier was a horrible horrible sexist <laughs> or not um Okay, that's great. That's uh, things I have never even heard of. I love it. I love being completely surprised by what are you reading? Jason Brightman, what are you reading? Well, I'll go in the opposite sort of direction. And uh, the book I'm most enjoying now is Matt Fraction's Hawkeye. I have heard such good things about that book. It is so good. And we can talk about it on an upcoming podcast because I think the trade comes out in a month or two. Yeah, it, it comes. I I want to say that it comes out early February, but it, everything Fraction's been touching has turned to absolute gold. Yeah, the uh, so this Hawkeye story, every issue is self-contained. Oh. Uh, no real continuity between the issues, um, and it's sort of as the kind of preamble of the book uh, says. This is what Hawkeye does when he's not saving the world with the Avengers, which is mostly hanging out in his apartment uh, and getting into trouble. <laughs> There's a, a beautiful scene where. Uh, Tony Stark is over at his house, and I can't even remember why. But uh, during the entire conversation, Hawkeye is trying to get his his stereo system hooked up and failing miserably to uh. the point that uh, Stark says, look, I'll just buy you a new one. Forget it. Like, let's go. Um, it's a really, really funny series. They did just have uh, a, a two-issue uh, event that... Uh, wasn't self-contained because it was two issues um but the artwork was so beautiful and the the cover of one was a vhs tape and the cover of the second one was that vhs tape shattered and blood everywhere as um it was a a tape uh that showed hawkeye murdering somebody and this was a shield tape and it was a vhs thing not even a, a digital tape and then it got stolen and was out for auction and hawkeye had to get it back uh, and it was uh a really, really funny story. I guess that's the thing. The stories are so kind of lighthearted and funny with a lot of heart. And the artwork's beautiful. And it, it's unlike any other uh, book on the shelf right now. Huh. I'm reading an article here that uh, refers to it as the Avenger who's just a dude and says that the plot of uh, issue number one is that his la- landlord is hassling him about the rent and his dog needs to go to the vet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. See, if it was a cat, I think the dramatic states well, would be up dramatic would yeah. be up tremendously. <laughs> In the latest issue of, of Captain Marvel, that's what Captain Marvel has to do is take her cat to the vet. <laughs> wow. 
No one will be seated during the pivotal sticking, cramming your cat in a carrier sequence. Are, are, vet, are vets funding, secretly funding Marvel now or like pet insurance secretly behind Marvel Comics now? So besides that, I'm also reading and enjoying the new Valiant books. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. They're so good. Which is surprising. You know, I was a big fan of them back in the uh, early 90s. Uh, and you have to remember that. In the early 90s was more like the late 80s thematically. It was before the image comics and the the big capes and badly drawn characters, and it was still about story. And it it really feels, even though everything in the, the New Valiant comics uh, have all the modern sensibilities, uh, the, the stories um, feel very much like those original Valiant issues it's they're doing a really great job and they're you know changing stuff and making it more modern but keeping the spirit of the characters so much intact that's cool i remember you talking to me about the old valiant stuff and then now there now there's new valiant stuff new valiant stuff and um of them uh i'm really liking shadow man and it's almost embarrassing to say but uh bloodshot is really really good i didn't expect to like it at all no, me neither. And the bloodshot, the name, it, it's just so stupid. And it's kind of a, a cliche <laughs> of a, a character now. Uh, even then, back then, it really wasn't where the, the characters got these nanites that, you know, can rebuild them from any injury. Uh, but they've done a really sort of interesting take on that, uh, as well as it's the, the character who doesn't know who he is, and he's got to figure out his past. And it's it's been pretty exciting and drawn really well. And I did not expect to like it at all, which then makes it so much sweeter when you do. Cool. Moises, what are you reading? Way too much. Um, <laughs> the new Valiant books, uh, I've, I've been catching up. On, the, the one that I was most delinquent on was Harbinger, which is uh, kids with powers, but not where everybody gets together in a happy-go-lucky team, and they have a nice mansion and uh, their own jet and everything. Um, you're, it's You're bringing me it, down, man. <laughs> you know, it, it the, it's it's a different take on superhero tropes. What what they're doing across the Valiant line, um, and I've been I've been really impressed with it. Uh, and at first, when I was like, "Oh, Valiant books are back. All right, well, that's interesting. They're going to make more crappy video games." Oh wait, no, these are people who actually care. Okay, great. Um, we have an episode of Giant Size where we talk about that. Uh, plug plug plug. Um, Forty Seven Ronin has been really good, even though I've I've missed Usagi Yojimbo. Uh, for a number of months, as uh, Stan Sakai has focused on telling uh, what is considered, in terms of ancient culture, one of the definitive great Japanese myths in comic form. Um, I don't think it's getting a whole lot of attention because it's the guy who does Usagi Yojimbo doing an ancient Japanese uh, feudal myth. Uh, but it's a really good book, and it's a, it's a limited run. It'll only be around for a little while. And then I'm I'm catching up on all kinds of stuff. I'm digging back. Start, I'm, I'm going to start back at Amazing Spider-Man 600 and work forward and see if they really are full of crap uh, when they say they've been planning this for nearly 10 years uh, to do things that raise Dan Benjamin's blood pressure. Um, <laughs> what else? There's something... There, oh, New Avengers. Now, New Avengers I'm reading uh, because I'm totally nuts for Doctor Strange, and we'll pick up just about anything that he's in, uh, if if anything, just to um, to to cast a, a disapproving glare at it, uh, because I think he's the the most underused uh, cool character that Marvel has. Uh, but New Avengers takes the conceit of this Illuminati group that he and Professor Xavier and, and Iron Reed Man, Reed Richards, don't forget and Reed, Reed Richards. Richards, Reed Richards, Namor. 
these guys got together and decided they were going to be the secret council of superpowered dudes that were going to rule Earth. And Black Bolt showed up and was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'm, I'll just hang out in the back." He, well, he he didn't say it. He wrote it on a note. Yeah, he said it with his eyes. Uh, is what he did. <laughs> um, he does that a lot. And uh, signing interpretive dance. Then at some point, these guys came into possession of the Infinity Gems, uh, which are a very important thing in the Marvel Universe, going back to Infinity Gauntlet. And the new Avengers are uh, one of the many Avengers Plus adjective books, but it's uh, it's the one that I find the most interesting and compelling, alongside what I would argue is... is um, is is starting to be a pretty compelling run on the core Avengers book by Jonathan Hickman, um, where the core Avengers book, they're going to have like 80 Avengers or something. They've got guys like Manifold, who I forgot even existed, um, <laughs> whose power is to essentially create a door to go from point A to point B. And that's all he does. That's literally all he does. <laughs> but it's a, he's a really good plot device. How is that any different than Cloak, though, of Cloak and Dagger? That's like Cloak's whole thing is he runs around with his hot girlfriend and... Yeah, but this Open. is less dark. This guy just has a door. And and when you go through cloak, it he you know the darkness tries to eat you. So it's less of yeah. an effective doorway. And this is just this is just a guy opening a door, and on the other side is where you need to go. No, he he's literally the Avengers doorman. Is all he, he is. He literally is. He literally <laughs> is. And I think I, I I don't approve. Good day, sir. Where would you like to go? Well, there yeah, you go. I, Have a good day. You know, it, the, the the writing on him and some of the other characters, uh, stuff that uh, people that they haven't messed around with that much, they, they're they bringing some X, X-Men or former X-Force people in like Cannonball and Richter. And they, they've the, the cast of this book, three issues in, is about 20 people. Um, but there's some big threat that they've all got to fight. But, but New Avengers is the Illuminati guys... Um, facing a bigger threat that is is kind of on the scale of cascading quantum chaos uh threatening to end the universe and so they say well uh i guess uh we're gonna have to agree to reassemble the infinity gauntlet and i'm sure that this is going to go really well oh yeah ultimate power really never corrupts at all it'll be fine now my my go to book overall though is uh, is Deadpool, which has uh, consistently entertained me in the four issues that we've gotten since they relaunched it without a bunch of weird stuff that Daniel Way was doing with it. Uh, the is uh, is he still uh, fighting dead presidents? Yes, he's still fighting dead presidents. Nice. I think I think he <laughs> fights Abe Lincoln in the next one. Well, that's um, a big one. That's a big one. That's a big. It's a big milestone. I told I told the the guys writing it that if uh, if they didn't have something interesting in store for Millard Millard Fillmore, uh, I I that was it. I'm I'm just going to drop the book. But no, there there's so much good stuff out there. I recently tried catching up on a bunch of the new Fifty Two stuff, which a lot of which I had dropped one or two months in just because uh, it wasn't doing it for me. And now going back and you know looking into back issues, I realize exactly why I dropped ninety nine point nine percent of these books um because either editorial was you know running roughshod over the uh over the writers or it it just they didn't gel very few of them still worked i'm glad that i stuck with the batman books i'm glad that i stopped pouring needless piles of money in the green lantern family of lucky charms books (laughs) <laughs> Red lanterns, green lanterns. We want any lanterns? Blue lanterns. We got lanterns for every color in the rainbow. I got all the lanterns here. Rainbow lanterns. That would be a good like My Little Pony kind of competitor. Rainbow lanterns. Yeah, yeah. Frankly, I would at this point I would rather read the My Little Pony Friendship is Magic book 
than any of the Green Lantern books because I, I feel like I'm getting one line of book worth of story spread across five different comics, which is just, I'm sure that it probably does some good things for their balance sheet, but I'm just, I'm, I'm not into that kind of crap anymore. Wow. You, you're, uh, you're reading a lot of stuff. I got to say way too much. I, I, I'm not, I'm not reading so much and much of the stuff that I'm reading is boring. Cause I've talked about it before you know, I'm still reading Ultimate Spider-Man. Now, Jason, if they had the gender key, then they could take Ultimate Spider-Woman and turn her back into Peter Parker. There you go. Would solve everything. So lock and key uh, mash up with the Ultimate Universe, and then we'll, then finally there would be a Peter Parker who was alive again. That'd be nice. Uh, speaking of which, I did read uh, Amazing Spider-Man 700, and there's a whole podcast of me complaining about that. I refer you to that podcast for more um i'm enjoying all new i'm enjoying all new x-men which is again bendis and that is the kind of ridiculous and yet delightful premise of the original x-men being thrown into the modern day world that we live in or at least the marvel universe equivalent and being kind of horrified and dealing with the fact that (laughs) what happened to them uh when they got all all, when they got all grown up or in some people's cases got all uh, megalomaniacal and died uh gene gray not naming names uh phoenix anyway um i'm enjoying that i think that that's actually uh exploiting that premise really well and it's uh it's all about the characters and and uh and how they interact with the world and then they put kid sort of kitty pride as their babysitter which is hilarious that kitty pride is the authority figure over the original x-men uh, so I, I've been enjoying that, and and and, uh, and I continue to enjoy Extreme X Men by Greg Pak, which just got canceled, which makes me very sad. So we're we're going to officially have the wake for Extreme X Men because I was following it too. Such a great book, alternate universe hopping X Men, alternate Wolverine, alternate Night Cra- Kid Nightcrawler, uh, led by the Dazzler from the main Marvel universe, who now apparently is available to be in that. Uh, other X-Men book with all the other women X-Men, I suppose. So somebody should give <laughs> Dazzler a call. She's she's free. She's still dating Sam Guthrie. Uh, no, no, well, no, no. She's been she's been busy. Yeah, she's been and she's been hopping hopping from from alternate reality to alternate reality. Great book. Going to be very sad to to see it go. Um, but uh, but I'm that reading currently two X-Men books. That's a record for me since the days when I was reading X-Men and New Mutants in high school. So. Oh, I, I wanted to mention also that I signed up for Marvel's Digital Comics Unlimited, Ooh. Uh, which is now, if you if you pay, whatever it is, $50 for a year, uh, it'll actually run, work on the iPad, and it's not too bad, um, surprisingly. It used to be Flash-based entirely, and it's basically like Netflix for Marvel Comics. It, it won't give you anything current, but it does have... Uh, 10,000 comics that go back they got a lot of classic stuff from the 60s a lot of stuff from about sort of two to five years ago and then kind of sporadic throughout the other er other issues that they've digitized but um it's actually if you've got you know if you if you've got a lot of time and want to read lots of old marvel comics uh it's probably a pretty good deal certainly better than buying you won't get the current stuff but if you're not really focused on the current stuff and and reading spider-man 600 would be just as easy as reading spider-man 700 um might be worth checking out it, it's um still in beta i get the i get the distinct impression that they have more work to do it would really benefit from being inside an app instead of just being in the browser 
Um, and I can't believe they aren't going to do that. But but it does work in the browser. So you can't you can't view offline then. No, no, it's it's a it's definitely like I said, it's the Netflix of comics. You basically need to be online and you watch in in the browser. And uh, it, but it does work, which is great because before it was only on a computer with Flash and. It wasn't very good, and once it's on the iPad, it changes the game a lot and makes it a much more valuable thing. So, I've uh, got some I've got some old issues of Strange Tales I need to catch up with. Maybe <laughs> that will be the way. I was reading old old Marvel events where I I don't have to wow. get upset about about their continuity decisions or anything like that. I can just sort of read the miniseries. You know, I can read House of M and be like, that was okay. That's what that was all about, and not worry about like what does this mean and you know, it just let it. Let, it's like it. I, I can't believe they did that. To, it just I don't. It, it happened in the past. They've reset it all anyway. It doesn't really matter. And I can, you know. All you have to do is just wave your hands around, and it's done. Yep, that's right. <laughs> I said no more mutants. <laughs> <laughs> Why are there more mutants? I said, did was I not clear? No more mutants. <laughs> are, are you reading those old events and going, boy, that really did change everything <laughs> yeah yeah that happens all the time <gasps> i can't believe he died wow that really did change comics fundamentally in every way forever it is hilarious <laughs> to read comic book characters dying and know that they've already come back and died and come back multiple times since then but and and been reborn as a child and i would love to do a comic book club on house of m because looking back oh god it's been almost 10 years since that thing came out you you have to admire that the scope of the ambition and the sheer bat Ooh. insanity that yeah. that went into yeah. so many of the of 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 the twists and turns in that um, yeah. and for what is essentially an imaginary yes it, for what was essentially basically like Bobby in the shower at Dallas yeah. I, mean, no, <laughs> I told I told I told my wife that I was re- what the plot was and and she said why why would they turn it back was everybody happy I said yeah. Well, then why would they? Because it wasn't real. She's like, but it was real. They changed it to be real. Why would they? No, that's the thing that kills me is is there's nothing in that that's, that holds up. I mean, no. sure, Steve Rogers gets hosed, but, you know, <laughs> the man is hosed He's in Marvel continuity when you look at it. But, uh, you know, everyone else is super happy and fulfilled. Yeah. And, and I, I, I fail to understand what the conflict is here. Yeah. <laughs> this universe is better. Let's keep it. And instead, it's all no. You, you're, you're crazy and imagining well, things. And Ru- Wolverine has to ruin it for everyone again. Well, there's, there's all there. There's so many different ridiculous plot lines they've done, like Days of Future Past, Age of Apocalypse. I would be willing to do a podcast on Age of Apocalypse just to talk about the hair alone. And <laughs> well, you know, we're we're living in the year of Days of Future Past, right? It's set in the year 2013. Wow! Oh, that's great. <laughs> and they're making and, and they're making that as as a as a movie. a movie. Yeah. And they're merging the the X Men movie universes from the Patrick Stewart era and the First Class era. It's all mm-hmm. it's all colliding. Oh yeah. Somehow. Oh, like the Star Trek universes do. Exactly. Well, sorta, kind of. I guess. Exactly. I guess. <laughs> I guess. All right. Well, I guess. No, all right. All right. Well, I'm, I'm I'm glad that I'm not the only one crazy enough to to love all new X Men. It's uh, it, it's been a lot of fun, and I, I thought, well, maybe this will work for six issues. But I think I think there is an enduring concept for at least a little while in that book. I, I think it it comes down to to Brian Michael Bendis being you know focused on he's he he's focused more on the characters and trying to take the concept and following it to some interesting logical interesting places. And, uh, 
you know, I, that, that's why I love Ultimate Spider-Man, and it's the same. I feel like it's the same kind of tricks, which is he's got these young X-Men, and they've been thrown forward in time. And what would you do if that was you? And then he, you know he's explored all that, and I, I think uh, yeah, it's still uh, it's still plus he, the stories he writes are so decompressed that five issues is like one story. So he's got lots of stories, lots of issues left in him. Even if he has like five stories to tell, that's going to take him two more years. So. Well, worth uh, worth noting and plugging. Uh, you know, th- this is what happens when you bring a guy with comic book shows on your show. Uh, it's got a new artist as of this latest issue, and he's the guest on Giant Size Ten, which will be like weeks weeks ago when this actually weeks airs. ago. It'll it'll have been weeks ago, <laughs> weeks in the distant past. Yes, jump into your time machine built by Forge, and uh, and jump <laughs> into the past and and listen to that episode. Just insert the time machine key. Oh, it doesn't it doesn't go into the twenty first century. It only works with. Uh, because it's analog. Yeah, it's a Y2K problem with the analog time, time travel. <laughs> well, so this has been great. So we we caught up on some comics and we talked about Lock and Key, which I recommend to everyone. I think you should uh, check it out. Check it out. Trade paperbacks are available. It's really good. So I would like to thank my my uh, esteemed guests for the Comic Book Club, uh, Jason Brightman. Thank you for being here. It's good to have you back. Thank you. We have all the technology set up so we can do this more often. I know. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be good. Lisa Schmeiser, thank you as always for being here. It was my pleasure as always. And Moises Chuyan, you are you are on my show for once instead of me being on your show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, and and I look forward to uh, talking Dan off of a ledge regarding Spider Man again sometime soon. Yeah, well, we're all a lot of us are out on that ledge. Let me tell you the Spider Man ledge. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this edition of the Comic Book Club. Until next time on The Incomparable, this is Jason Snell. Goodbye. Goodbye.